welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, the healthcare podcast where we talk everything value-based care with the top experts in the field. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. I'm Max Blumenthal, and I'm joined by Senior Consultant at Day Health Strategies, Sarah Bliss-Matusik. That's right. And today we're going to be exploring more of the financing of ACOs with one of the world experts in the field to understand better how ACOs are aiming to incentivize lower costs and what have been the initial results. Accountable care is really about driving value in the healthcare system. And beyond improving health outcomes and quality, value is also about decreasing costs. And ACOs have been touted as one of the potential mechanisms to rein in these high costs that pervade the healthcare system. And like it or not, the dollar considerations around these shifts in value-based care are what's really going to make or break the success of ACOs. And so to help set up our conversation with Dr. Seeley, Sarah, could you provide us and the audience with a quick refresher of how ACOs are typically set up in their financing and and kind of how that impacts the way that care is delivered? Yeah, so I'll just be really brief and kind of hit some of the high points. The first thing to remember or know is that accountable care care organizations are financed in a number of different ways, so there's a lot of variations on this model. Um, Some are full insurance risk, meaning they get sort of a bucket of money to uh, give care to a particular member or patient for an entire year. Some are just sort of billing for what they do, and then at the end of the year, they take a look at how much was spent on that patient or member, and then they sort of reconcile and uh, look at whether they spent above or below some benchmark expected spend on that person, and then they might sort of reap some benefit bonus if they spent less, or they might um, be dinged financially if they spent more. Um, So that's kind of the basic premise uh, of the two kind of types of financing models. Um, Most models involve some sort of what, what I consider a glide path to risk. So you'll start off pretty easy. You know, there's only upside risk. You're protected from having to pay pay back any money at the end of the year, Um, but you get sort of a bonus or you get to reap some benefited savings at the end if you did a really good job. And the way that you do a good job is to, you know, do things like avoid unnecessary care to... um, to do a really good job with, you know, using care management models and care coordination models to get people the care that they need when they need it so they don't land in the emergency department with something that could have been avoided, that sort of thing. Um, so one one thing to remember is that during that glide path time in, in this sort of initial time period is that it's a very critical time to invest in transformative infrastructure such that they can save that money on the back end maybe a year or two or three down the road. And one example of groups that have been able to do this um, are the Medicare ACOs. So those got set up and launched uh, back in 2010 to 13 um, when the Affordable Care Act uh, launched. And so those groups have some data behind them. um, And what we found or learned recently is that Um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services at the federal level have decided that going forward, um, there's not going to be the ability to remove yourself from downside risk. So every Medicare ACO is going to have to uh, take on some downside risk, and so there's more risk there. And we'll get into that a little bit more in our conversation with Dr. Seeley today. 
Yeah, those uh, financial considerations are going to end up being really serious for a lot of these ACOs. And that's the kind of questions that we're going to be uh, getting into in our conversation uh, with Dr. Seeley. So why don't we jump right into that? Great. Thanks. We're here today with Dr. Liz Seeley, who's an adjunct professor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Um, Thanks so much for joining us today, Liz. Thanks for having me. Um, So we'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and your path to where you are now. Um, So you could start as early as you want, but we'd just love to hear uh, the trajectory of your career and and where you are now and then maybe where you'd like to be headed. Sure. So I received my master's um, from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, which at the time was the Harvard School of Public Health, um, back in 2003, or yeah, I believe it was 2003 was when I finished. Um, from there, I went on to work at the Mass Hospital Association, where I started the sort of beginning of my experience in healthcare payment um, from the provider perspective during that phase. Um, I then went on to do my PhD at the London School of Economics and focused there on pharmaceutical payment and reimbursement, looking specifically at generic prices and how different countries' regulations impact the degree of generic price competition. From there, I came back to the U.S. and went to work as a senior researcher at Research Triangle Institute, um, known as RTI International, where I was in their healthcare finance and reimbursement group and led projects on a variety of um, primarily Medicare um, reimbursement issues, issues that were very technical and detailed, such as the Gypsy and the Hospital Wage Index and RVUs. Um, From there, I decided to go back to academia um, to be able to have the flexibility to do sort of wear a number of hats in the healthcare system. Um, So... In my role now and and over the past five years, I have done a variety of things. I teach, as Max knows, I teach a course on payment systems at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Um, I also do consulting. I've done consulting work for a number of different organizations, um, helping them to show their value in the broader system. Um, I also have done a couple of different research projects for the Commonwealth Fund. Um, on pharmaceutical payments specifically, so looking at outcomes-based pharmaceutical contracts, and I'm just finishing a project now on pharmaceutical benefit managers. And finally, I'm transitioning to a new role alongside all the other stuff I just explained. I'll be working a couple of days a week moving forward as a private contractor for CMMI, helping them with their payment models. That is so fun. Wow. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I love the work CMI <laughs> Starts in does. a few weeks. Yeah. Yep. Oh, fun. That'll be really cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to continue to hear yeah. about how that's going. Yep. So that's quite an impressive resume, and it sounds like you're wearing a number of different hats in the work you do currently. So I'm very excited about the perspective you'll be able to bring to our conversation today. On Unlocking Accountable Care, we focused a lot of our attention on how ACOs are being implemented and their impact on care delivery reform. But today, I'm excited to target this conversation more specifically towards the financing and structure of ACOs and their potential to produce cost savings for the healthcare system. But to start off more generally, in light of the increasing number of accountable care models across Medicaid, Medicare, and private insurers, and compared to what has been attempted in the past, what's your take on value-based care efforts as they currently stand? 
Okay, great. So my take on value-based care now um, is that, first of all, the, one of the large ways in which it's different than in the past is in this sort of goal and mission of improving value, not just cost savings. Um, so back in the 80s and 90s, you know, the, the big thing was HMO networks and capitation models, um, which in, in some ways, in terms of the risk-sharing arrangement aspect, were not all that different than what we're seeing today. However, what has really evolved and, and progressed over time is the tracking um, and the monitoring of um, a variety of different outcomes measures um, that really tie in um, to these cost savings to make it a value equation. Uh, we also, um, I think from a value-based perspective, we've seen huge shifts in the readiness of IT systems and um, the ability to measure and track. I think there's been big progress in risk adjustment measures so that from a technical perspective, these things can be done more accurately than they used to be done in the past. Um, so I think we've seen huge progress. And then finally, in addition to sort of IT and, and the technical measurement aspects, I think culturally there's been a big shift toward embracing value-based um, purchasing. And I think we see that both in Medicaid, such as the Mass Health, Mass Health Program in Massachusetts, um, Medicare, both through ACOs, but also through a variety of other programs, um, everything from their, you know, readmissions reduction program to their hospital value-based purchasing program to bundled payment arrangements, um, you know, to the hospital, the um, the hospital acquired infections program, and then private payers and commercial, you know, are are certainly following suit here and doing this all as well. Um, so I think there's been a big um, step in this direction from mm -hmm. a policy and payment perspective. All right, thanks. That's a really great overview, actually. So uh, based on that, I'm wondering if we can get into the weeds a little bit. Do you think you could provide for us an example of a risk-sharing arrangement and what incentives um, an arrangement might create in this new world where you've got now tracking and you know, quality attached to it? Sure. So I think, you know, an example of a risk sharing arrangement, um, you know, would be the Medicare Shared Savings Program, mm -hmm. where um, historically, so, you know, they've already gone through their first wave of models, um, where it's a voluntary program that has allowed hospitals to participate as ACOs, and in the beginning, not actually be at financial risk. So in the early stages of this program, um, hospitals have been allowed to enter into a contract with CMS as an ACO, uh, and under this program, they have a variety of outcomes of, of outcome and, and health measures tracked and monitored, um, and then they have to they're, then they're they're measured and evaluated against um, benchmarks that CMS calculates um, that have been based on um, the spending of their designated. Um, ACO beneficiaries ba based on the sort of plurality of where these people receive their primary care. Um, the, this Medicare Shared Savings Program um, allowed hospitals to enter into this type of arrangement and experiment with what it feels like to be an ACO, what the issues at hand might be without feeling at direct risk financially in the early days. What is now happening moving forward is there's a proposal on the table that just came out in August 
to introduce a new path called the GLIDE path, where these hospitals that previously had been in this program but not were not yet taking real risk, where, where they would see upside and share in some of the savings but not share in actual losses. Mm-hmm. In the future, the new GLIDE program is proposing to require them to start to really share in some of the losses. And that is, um, that's an example of a shared savings program that is transitioning slowly um, because it's a voluntary program. And so the idea is to hopefully get the hospitals and the systems comfortable with this type of model um, before really putting them at risk. Thanks. That's really helpful. Now, the transition for ACOs to being required to take on full downside risk is certainly becoming top of mind as many Medicare programs are transitioning into that full risk sharing. Do you think there will be a drop in participation going forward, or will this continue to push the entire paradigm in the right direction? It's. I think it's too early to speculate on what percent of these hospitals are going to stay in versus drop out. I think that they do have I mean, I think that the system is creating a number of incentives to get them to stay in um, besides sharing in the savings. um, This also goes hand in hand with MACRA, where physicians have a huge financial incentive um, to have to be in an alternative alternative payment arrangement. And these two sided risk models where there's genuine risk sharing um, makes these physicians eligible for this alternative payment arrangement bonus payment of the, of the automatic 5% pay bump. So I think that um, there will be pressures on these, these program, these hospitals that are currently ACOs um, and the physician groups that are currently ACOs, there will be pressure to stay in these ACOs because of these different reasons, not, not sort of just from the hospital perspective. So I think, you know, to sort of try to get more specifically a question of, you know, will they stay or go, um, I think that the physician-led ACOs, um, which I don't have the percentage off the top of my head, but I think um, it's, it was a significant percent of the Medicare Shared Savings Program ACOs are physician-led. Those will certainly have a large incentive to stay um, because even if they're at risk of some of the losses under their ACO, they, on the other side of the coin, will get the pay bump from being in an alternative payment arrangement. Um, I think the hospital-led ACOs, um, you know, will have to sort of look at their books and figure out, now, hold on, we, you know, have we been losing or have we been saving money? Um, obviously, the hospitals, sort of the roughly half of, you know, hospitals that have been, um, actually, it's roughly half of the ACOs saved money. I don't know the exact stat on the percentage of the hospital-led ACOs that saved money, but the, the obviously the hospital ACO the hospital-led ACOs that saved money are more inclined to stay. Um, the hospital-led ACOs that lost money, I think, are going to have to make careful decisions about, um, you know, moving forward. Do they think they can turn things around? Um, you know, if if I think there will be some hospital-led ACOs that ultimately do drop out of the program, um, yeah. and from from the perspective of of CMS and um, and the future for value-based healthcare, hopefully it won't be a large, you know, share of hospitals that leave. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you made about hospital versus physician-led um, ACOs. We can actually do some research and find out what the percentage is of hospital-led yeah. ACOs that saved yep. or lost. You probably provide that in the show notes after the episode. Um, 
So, and I'm glad that you brought up macro. I think it's, it, we certainly understand that it's really important and is, um, it represents a huge shift um, in the way that Medicare is being paid for and it's pushed towards value-based care. We have a little plug. We have a sort of macro 101 blog that we did if listeners are interested in going to the website and just searching for that. Um because uh, it's fairly complicated, um, <laughs> uh, but we try to break it down into kind of the easy sort of here are the three major parts. Many payment arrangements that are full insurance risk at the highest level, like the Medicaid ACO model that we have here in Massachusetts, are still actually working on a fee-for-service chassis for physician billing um, down at the, the level of patient care. So how do you see that impacting the success of a program like this one or others? And how would full risk sharing all the way down to the physician level look like for an ACO? Yeah. So I think you've highlighted a huge issue, and it's a huge problem. Um, I am not sure the system has evolved yet to the point of really finding many solutions, at least in terms of testing different things at the level you're describing. What I've heard, um, and this is this would be an in- interesting area to kind of do research on, I don't have the data up top of my head. I think what you'd want to know from a re- research perspective is, of all of these ACOs out there, um, how many of them have truly tied individual physician compensation to the ACO performance? And my guess is the majority of them have not yet. What I've heard, you know, from the individual physicians I've spoken with is that, in fact, it's the opposite, that their compensation is still tied to um, to utilization and to um, RVUs. And yep. that, in that sense, the fee-for-service system is still sort of winning out in terms of the incentives that the hospitals are using for physicians. The reason being, obviously, because it is still a system that's you have sort of two different things happening at the same time. So you have these ACOs coming in with Medicare, Medicaid, um, some com- commercial plans. However, a large share, and that and that share really ranges geographically depending on you know where you are and which hospital system or provider system you're talking about, but a large share of payment is still fee-for-service. And the analogy I've heard used that I, I like is this idea of having a foot in each canoe at the same time. Yeah, and we've so, heard that. <laughs> yeah, so these hospitals and... Um, you know, physician groups are trying to kind of manage com- completely conflicting set of incentives. And I think it, de- it does get very challenging, very confusing. I've heard stories from physicians of, you know, hospitals having um, really interesting quality programs that they only apply to the ACO patients, but they don't apply to the other patients. Um, you know, so, so you, you have kind of, um, I think, some, some cultural sort of wars happening internally within systems with all of this. In an ideal world, um, I think what you'd want is you'd want physician compensation to be certainly not based on fee-for-service. So you'd want a sort of salary type of model where bonuses were linked to how the ACO performed. Um, Of course, the, the big decision then would need to be, do you do this individually for physicians? Do you, do you sort of link their individual performance somehow? Um, or do you do this on a population level? So in other words, do you have all of, all of the physicians tied exactly the same to the ACO performance financially? Or 
Do you, do you look at, you know, how each physician has done personally? Um, so I think those are really challenging decisions to make um, and depend on the size of the group and, and the nature of the care. Um, I know that some ACOs have different um, sort of sets of incentives and different populations of physicians and, and may have to structure things differently. So, for example, the community health centers um, here in Massachusetts, um, I was once speaking with um, one of the people who runs the big ACO model for the community health centers, and she was saying that they had tried, they offered the sort of option of tying bonuses for physicians at the community health centers to the ACO performance directly. Um, and the physician said, well, we don't want bonuses unless the nurses and everybody else on our team are, are getting the same thing because we feel they're just as instrumental in the care. And yeah. so this is clearly a very mission-driven group of physicians at the community health centers um, that don't even necessarily want their own um, you know, compensation directly tied. and They don't want to be um, receiving the rewards if others aren't. So I think um, the culture of the physicians come into play um, and the actual payment mix comes into play. And I think the system is um, nowhere near where they need to be in terms of really aligning physician compensation with ACO incentives. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen the same thing. There are a lot of barriers to moving that in the right direction. And um, like you, I've heard of pockets where there's sort of movement in the right direction. Like, for example, I know that Coastal, uh, Coastal's ACO in Rhode Island um, did very well in their Medicare program a couple years back, and they did actually push bonus payments out to everyone down to the front desk staff, which was really yep. interesting. Um, yep. And uh, I spoke with a, an ACO in Mass. In, in central Massachusetts yesterday who ties physician and uh, all provider actually payments to the performance, but that's sort of few and far between. It's, it's unusual mm. to right. hear that actually. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, um, as ACOs are transitioning to full upside and downside risk arrangements, which seems to to be, you know, we're definitely heading in that direction. What are your biggest concerns? Do you think this is sustainable? Um, and one of the things specifically, I'm wondering if you can comment on, is the fact that we often see high performing ACOs, you know, pick the low hanging fruit, do really well, and then struggle to improve further. So, I'm right. it's sort of two different questions, but I'm wondering if you can comment yeah. on those. Um, all right. So. In response to your first question around um, when the risk becomes more real, you know, what, what will happen, um, I think my biggest concern is that um, certainly in the voluntary programs, um, such as Medicare, that the systems that just aren't performing well will drop out. Um, and we, we certainly saw evidence of that with the Pioneer program years ago, um, where a number of them that were pretty advanced systems, you know, quickly realized they were going to lose money and left and transitioned to the Medicare Shared Savings Program where they were not going to bear risk. So right. um, my concern is that you will have a lot of the hospitals drop out and that the hospitals uh, or, you know, physician-led ACOs, but that the ACOs that drop out, um, you know, maybe the ones that need help the most. And, um, and so you might have um, sort of the haves and the have-nots in the system, those who stay in and do well and those who drop out and kind of don't necessarily have um, a great sense for where they're going to go from there in the value-based purchasing world. Um, so that's one concern I have. Um, 
the other concern I have, your second question, can you remind me what that was again? Oh, yeah. It was about um, ACOs that perform well struggling to continue because they've already sort yeah. of pulled the easy money out of <laughs> the system. Right. No, I mean, I, well, so I think that's, um, that's a huge, you know, challenge. I think, um, you know, it's one thing to save money by reducing emergency room visits for your, you know, most acute population. Um, it's another thing to save money by truly changing care coordination, right? It's by truly improving um, where these patients are going when they leave the hospital. Are they going to the right, you know, post-acute care settings? Are they, um, you know, the most efficient places from a payment perspective? I think those things require a completely different level of understanding and even access to data um, for these ACO systems to, to really know exactly what the prices are everywhere and what the quality is that they're getting everywhere when their patients go to post-acute care. I think um, integrating, you know, um, pharmaceutical benefits into these ACO models, um, you know, under the Medicare Shared Savings Program, for example, that does not include Part D. Um, the Mass Health ACO Program does include pharma. Um, so I think that in terms of, you know, where further potential for savings um, may lie, you might, you know, we're, we're going to have a whole new um, sort of wave of understanding as we see what happens when we integrate pharma. Um, but yeah, I, th I think there is, a, so to, in response to your question, I think there's plenty of additional opportunity for improvement in, in value, um, but it will certainly, you know, be more challenging. Yeah, yep, definitely agree with all that. Um, so one last question that I might I might end up breaking into two is um, is about your crystal ball. <laughs> so we're, we're wondering what you think about the future. So um, one of the things I want to mention is that uh, actually I'd like to bring the conversation back to you, to potentially your future work at CMMI. So for the listeners that aren't aware, CMMI is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Improvements. Am I right about that? Right. Okay. So um, the way that I've heard it described, and I like this description, is that the uh, the Affordable Care Act um, that was passed in 2010 is sort of like an iceberg. Um, the tip of the iceberg is the the newsworthy items that everyone hears about and debates. You know, the the access sure. issues, the exchange, yep. the exchanges, the the Medicaid um, expansion programs. But then beneath the water is this massive amount of work and um, funds that were put into doing really great things, like setting up CMMI. Um, so we're. I'm really curious to hear. Um, about the future work you're intending to do with CMMI, but um, what what do you see their role being in the future value-based care arrangements and pushing that forward across the country? And um, and then the second part of that question is, what does success look like for ACOs future forward, either Medicare or Medicaid? So maybe we can start with the first one. Sure. Um, okay, so, so the first question around, you know, CMMI and, and, and general sort of, the organization of value-based care initiatives in the U.S. Um, I think the exciting thing about value-based care initiatives in general um, is that it, it can be bipartisan. That um, from a political perspective, I mean, we yep. talk about Obamacare and, and all the controversies around Obamacare, um, but uh, when you look at this aspect of Obamacare that created an or a, a group like CMMI, um, you know, MACRA then was a very strong bipartisan piece of legislation that supported the further testing um, of, of these models. I think this notion of value-based purchasing, um, it is, 
you know, it's, it's, it's international. It's where every system needs to go as spending becomes, as spending just continues to increase um, and, and budgets get further constrained. We, we have to, as a system, begin to understand where the best place is to put our money. Um, I think that CMMI is a great way to have a, a laboratory um, where we can really see what the different types of models can, can result in. Um, and we can really test out, you know, for example, Medicare models, um, you know, the mass health opportunities or, or the um, Medicaid opportunities in the country um, are often through the waiver program, not directly through CMMI. So it doesn't need to be just CMMI. It can be, um, right. you know, a variety of different ways in which to test these models. But I think the testing of these models is extremely important um, to understand things um, I think that rolling things out on a national level um, when they involve risk would be, um, could be detrimental to the healthcare system um, and to providers, and, and, and you don't want to risk that. Um, so I think that being able to pilot things, being able to do voluntary models first before deciding to um, you know, Im- impose something on a broader scale is crucial. Um, I think that there are just a lot of um, great people who have tremendous experience in the healthcare system, who are working on these models, who are continuously figuring out ways to refine things. And so as they learn, as they get feedback from the, from the providers and from the payers, um, you know, they can, they can make tweaks. And I think there's a lot of additional opportunity to continue to learn. Um, your, your second question around, what was the second question? Uh, yeah, what does success look like for ACOs? Future forward. Well, success, success for ACOs would be um, achieving savings while improving the, the quality of care. And, you know, that is obviously the definition of value. Um, it's a lot harder to do than it sounds like. And one of the things I always tell my class is that, you know, everybody talks about value, um, but one of the first and foremost important things to understand is that for the most part, payers are not really able to achieve value in the form of, let's say, large incre- a large increase in quality and benefits at perhaps a marginal increase in cost. When people talk about value, they're really assuming that costs either be maintained or, or, or in an ideal world, reduced um, while, that, while you know, benefits and outcomes are improving. So I think to really achieve those two things at the same time, to reduce costs, and improve the quality of care is so challenging. And so often what we see with all of these models, whether it's the Medicare Shared Savings Program or, um, you know, all the other different programs out there, so often what we see is that quality measures do appear to improve, um, and that's great. And, you know, hospital readmissions reduction program, we see a lot of great stuff happening in the interest of patients, but not necessarily real cost savings. In the system, yeah. and so the real, real challenge is, um, you know, can we save costs? Can we can we really make this a more sustainable system from a spending perspective, um, without compromising the patient? And um, I think the great news is, we're, everybody's trying. They're trying a lot harder now than 20 or 30 years ago to really bring that patient patient into focus and figure out what are the ways in which we can. Um, you know, accomplish that that sort of triple aim everybody talks about. 
Yeah, I completely agree with all that, which which actually begs an, uh, another question that I didn't have on your list. So I'm going to throw you a little curveball here. Um, to actually reduce cost, um, we have to – I don't think we can get away from talking about the issue of price in the U.S., and it sounds like right. you've done a lot of work um, in, in pharma pricing in your history. So I'm interested to hear your perspective on the fact that our prices are so much higher than you know other OECD countries. Do you think there's a world in which – you know? regulation plays a role or how do we how do we deal with that issue yeah i think you have to have more regulation for the price issue um whether it's i mean i think you know you look at the example of massachusetts and massachusetts is constantly revisiting this in the legislature um and has not found a solution yet um pharmaceutical prices in the u.s um you know there you know the interesting thing about pharmaceutical policy is that there are a, a lovely list of options that other countries have shown us in um, ways in which you can try to bring more cost effectiveness to pharmaceutical payment. Um, and there are ways in which, I'm, you know, Max can tell you about a system we looked at in Germany um, and what they're doing. I think that there's no shortage of options. Where it gets challenging is the politics. And the fact that whenever you talk about, at the end of the day, um, reducing prices and moving to a more cost-effective system from a price perspective, um, you talk about somebody who's currently making money who will no, no longer make as much money. Yeah. Um, and that, that is a very hard thing to accomplish. I think um, it, you know, it, it gets um, politically very messy. There, you, 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 know, you see things fall apart very quickly. So from a policy perspective... It's not too difficult to sort of construct models, um, but from a political perspective, it's extremely difficult. Um, I do think that when it comes to prices, um, so for in the area, for example, pharmaceuticals in the U.S., I do think that um, there's a lot of system change coming down the road um, with payment, so with pharmaceutical benefit managers, with health plans, that as much as pharmaceutical manufacturers have pricing power, I do think the payers also are, it's a very consolidated market um, and that we see, you know, huge rebates being negotiated. I think the question is, um, can we make things more systematic in a more sort of scientific way that helps to figure out, you know, which drugs to prioritize um, at what cost um, in a way that applies to everybody. It, and that's where, you know, we, we've seen that can get very tricky culturally in the U.S. where people like choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, I I can think of about, you know, 100 barriers to, to getting that done. So you're right. It's it's easy in theory. Um, right. But yeah, right. difficult you know, practice. You can, you can sort of easily write a paper, and there have been many written out there um, by wonderful, you know, educational institutes and, and everything with a list of like the 10 things we need to do. And, um, but, but sort of, you know, politically implementing that's a different story. Yep, absolutely. Well, I, I think this was a really interesting conversation. I, um, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. Um, I know we're about at time. So if you're, if you're interested, we'd love to have you back another time to, you know, maybe further this conversation. I think the finance sure. piece to this whole uh, healthcare system is um, where we need to spend a lot more time um, yep. thinking about. So, um, so again, thank you so much. And uh, we hope that you have a lovely rest of your day. 
You too. Thanks so much for talking, and I look forward to being in touch in the future. Great. Thanks so much. And we're back. Thanks so much for your conversation with Dr. Seeley. She's such a great resource on this topic, and hopefully we can hear more from her in the future. So to continue our conversation, what makes people so excited about accountable care as a potential mechanism to actually reduce costs in the healthcare system? Yeah, I think I think one thing that you hear from sort of the folks that have been doing this for such a long time is this is just another round of the same thing that's been going over and over. But I think there are a few things that are different about it now that make it more feasible and that actually give me a little bit of hope that we're going to make real change over the next couple of decades. Um, so the current state of value-based care and, and not just the risk-taking component um, – is really what's new that and that makes the expectations around cost savings real um, and even health improvement can you believe it Um, so there are a couple things to think about here you know the first is that there we actually have improvements in the definition of value and people are beginning to understand more of what that means. You know, it means that you can't expect just to do a rote reduction in cost. It's not going to happen. Or it could happen, but you know that people would get sicker, that you wouldn't be taking care of them. So value is a great term because it includes getting the very best health outcome that you can for the lowest cost possible. And I think that's really helpful. The second is that we've had improvements in IT um, and the ability of providers and managed care organizations to risk adjust based on uh, data and real data. And then taking that data and doing really robust analytics um, and managing to it has become so much better over the last even five years that even smaller healthcare organizations are starting to get into that game. Um, And then the third is really just that the shift in the culture towards embracing things like value-based purchasing agreements and arrangements um, has been pushed uh, across many government initiatives, which, because they're so far-reaching, just makes it more of a a widespread initiative across the country, um, and other industries are following suit. I mean, that's so great to hear. It, it really seems like a, 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 there's a lot of potential to actually use this to you know, push value in the healthcare system. But now let's think a little bit more concretely. In Massachusetts, there's this five-year glide path before ACOs are going to have to start having to take on a lot of financial risk. In Medicare, a lot of the ACOs are already facing that risk. How are ACOs really thinking about maximizing the value they provide by focusing on costs? and really thinking about their long-term financial sustainability in this market. Yeah, it's a really great question. I think it's sort of the, you know, $60 million question actually. Um, but I have I have like probably a top 10 list of things that I think folks can do that would be really effective, but my my very th- top three I'll just mention briefly. So the first is leadership and clinician buy-in is crucial. Um, Having folks that understand what the goal is for these organizations, um, the cost goals, the outcomes goals, the health goals, the population health goals, really be on the same page and then come up together, meaning clinical and administrative partnerships and teamwork, come with a strategy together to get to make change for those goals. Um, And that, of course, includes a big culture component that we don't have time to get into. Um, But we did have, I think, another podcast episode on it. Um, The second is 
implementing an evidence-based model of care. And often that means a really solid, robust care coordination and care management model for the very most complex, high-cost, very sickest members. Um, and then right-sizing the rest of your services to everyone else who doesn't need maybe the most robust uh, services. And then the third is using data well. And it's pretty expensive to get the infrastructure set up for using data well, you know, getting an analytics department or even outsourcing is pretty pricey, um, but it will pay for itself over and over if it's done really well. Um, and the two, the last two things that I said really tie together because you, if you if you're running a very good evidence based model of care, then you're going to be able to use your data to further make it uh, sort of sort of hum and sing and and run well. That's uh, really great to hear the kinds of factors that are going to be critical for the success in this now that the dollars are actually on the line. And I imagine that all these healthcare organizations that are taking part of these ACOs are really scouring the, you know, the U.S. searching for these kinds of best practices. And that's why we feel so lucky that we've gotten to have conversations with such experts like Dr. Seeley on this podcast and really gotten to advance the conversation around what are best practices for you know, saving costs and improving the quality of care. So we hope that you continue to join us here at Unlocking Accountable Care, and we'll be having this conversation into the future. So thanks so much, and see you next time. Thanks, everyone. If you are interested in learning more about accountable care or how organizations can succeed in today's healthcare system, please visit our website, www.dayhealthstrategies.com. Check out our blog, follow us on Twitter, and join our mailing list. We regularly post content relevant to current healthcare issues and overcoming challenges in delivering value-based care. Unlocking Accountable Care is a production of Day Health Strategies. Direction and editing by Max Blumenthal. Additional support and research by Emily Eibel and Nico Lehman. Our producer is Rosemary Day. A special thanks to Purple Planet Music for the use of their songs. 